Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the Fraser of Allender podcast. I'm Mark Mitchell, a research assistant at the Fraser of Allender Institute. And today I'm joined by Mary Spowage, the deputy director of the Institute and the Times columnist and visiting, visiting professor at the University of Strathclyde, uh, Alf Young. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the Scottish economy and how the current economic crisis we're facing as a result of the coronavirus pandemic um, compares to those of the past. So, Alf, thanks very much for joining us. Um, you've written extensively on the Scottish economy over the years. Um, in fact, you've collected over 40 years of Fraser quarterly economic commentary analysis to describe the evolution of the Scottish economy since the mid-1970s. So if you could, could you just start us off with a, a, a broad description of, of how this current economic crisis compares to those um, you've experienced in the past? I think like a lot of people, I probably feel I've never seen anything like this at all. And the thing that's striking about it is this is not your typical uh, economic crisis where some sector of the economy, some part of the economy goes wrong, uh, be it finance, be it energy or whatever, and we fight to find a way out of it. This is a, a crisis where what we've actually done is in the face of a health crisis, shut down great swathes of the economy altogether and lock people up in their houses until the worst of this is over. Now, I can't think of anything in the time I've been doing this kind of stuff uh, that gives me any sense of that, except for one thing. And that one thing is at the beginning of the 1970s, in 1973, the then Heath government was having all sorts of problems. There was a, a huge energy crisis triggered by wars in the Middle East. The oil price quadrupled in no time at all, from $3 a barrel to $12 a barrel. Seems, seems pretty cheap now, but it was a huge increase. And there was an enormous crisis because we were beginning to enter a period of hyperinflation. Some called it eventually stagflation. Um, and the Tory government under Heath actually did a bit of what's happening now. It shut down bits of the economy. It created something called the three-day week. And the three-day week was largely driven by energy. They couldn't afford uh, to keep the lights on all the time. So they insisted that industry only worked for three days out of every week. And they're being assaulted on all sides by workers uh, looking at the inflation, high, hyperinflation, sometimes in the 30s percent, um, and looking for wage increases to make their pay uh, retain some of its value. Uh, so crises within miners and all sorts of other groups. And that three-day week was a partial shutdown. It didn't last very long because by 74, there was an election in the February which uh, Harold Wilson got back into power again with Labour. Uh, in a minority government and then held another election that same October uh, and that was the, the then the last Labour government we had until Tony Blair came on the scene uh, and, and in a sense that was a bit like this but it was so different in so many other ways because we still then had uh, major union militancy, we had great 
restructuring of great segments of the uh, economy like the coal mines, like the shipyards and other areas of heavy industry that were becoming globally uncompetitive. Uh, but never anything that said, look, we're going to shut down so much of the economy that we're going to end up with the government guaranteeing the incomes of a quarter, one in four of every worker out there in the country uh, for as long as it takes to beat this virus. It's just a completely unique experience. Yeah, so, so you mentioned there that, you know, in the past there have been partial shutdowns of the economy, you know, moving to a three-day week in the face of energy shortages. But would you say that, you know, compared to what you're, you're seeing now, how, how did that, that shutdown compare? If you look at, you know, what's going on out in the wider economy in Scotland, um, can you just tell us a little bit about how that is manifesting and, and what you see? And, and sort of moving on from that also, um, in times like this, there are always discussions of what the long-term effects or the long-term consequences of a crisis will be. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about you know, in these crises of the past, what the expectations during the crises were about potential long-term impacts and then how they shaped up against reality moving out of the crises? Well, I mean, I think back then, the, the consequences... Well, I mean, the first thing to say about it was the, the Scotland of the 1970s and the Scotland of the 2020s were two entirely different places. You know, we've had... 40 years of growing prosperity, more people in work, uh, more people, and you know, there's still huge issues about the disparities between rich and poor uh, in our society, but we're a much richer uh, enabled economy in terms of where we can go in the world, uh, where we can go to uh, socially, where we can go to in business. We didn't have the digital infrastructure we now have that allows us to do things from home uh, the way we are uh, recording this uh, podcast. Uh, that was a different, very different world then. But I, th I think then the crisis was really about a very divided uh, society uh, and about whether, you know, not that many people, for example, uh, I was one of, I think, only less than 10% of the population who was going to university to do a degree uh, in the 1960s. Um, I was a working class kid from Greenock. Uh, nobody in my family, in my entire family, had ever been anywhere near a university. That's changed completely. Uh, and now, you know, large numbers of kids are going on to further and higher education. Uh, but the consequences of the positive changes is that we're now, now looking at this massive shutdown and wondering how much of the stuff that we shut down back in February and March will still be there in any functioning form in June, July, September or next year. Uh, and what opportunities that we've got at the moment will no longer be there then. What uh, aspects of our modern lives will not be there anymore in terms of easing traveling around the world uh, um, people being able to travel to work uh, and all the rest of it. Huge, huge challenges. And I think it's the scale of the 
the scale now of the thinking through the consequences of this self-imposed lockdown and shutdown of so much of the economy uh, that we don't really have any real sense of how much will still be there when we come out the other side. That was never the feeling then. I mean, the feeling then was that times could only get better. Uh, more people could, uh, because so few people did have access to things like higher education, uh, to owning their own house, uh, that kind of thing. I mean, I, I started life as a teacher in the late 1960s. And one of the things you got is if you were a young teacher then in the state system, was apart from getting a job, you got a council house. My first house was a council house because I was a teacher. Um, now, the, the world we're in now, there are no certainties anymore. And I think so many people are uh, maybe partly enjoying the break and getting a chance to do other things, but also looking to what's coming next and thinking, what's going to happen to the, the kind of jobs I was doing before this all started and what the jobs I can do after it's finished? Yeah, and you, and you touched nicely there on, on um, some of the things about the world and the economy that we see today that make it so different um, to those of the past and also make it difficult in a lot of ways to learn from crises of the past. Um, could, you, could you give us an idea, um, drawn on your knowledge of the economy, particularly over the last 40 years, as we know you've, you've got a lot of experience writing the economy over that time, of how exactly you feel the Scottish economy and the, the labour force and the workforce has changed over the past few decades and how that might have um, made us unprepared in a lot of ways for a crisis of this nature. A lot of the discussion over the past weeks has been around how the, the, the nature and the setup and the structure of the economies across the world have, have meant that they were, we're not quite you know, as prepared as we could have been to deal with some of the challenges of an economic shutdown of, of this scale? I, th I mean, there, there are things I could pick out that are common to it. Uh, let's look at some, anyway, let's go back and look at what was there. I, I said uh, earlier that um, the, the crisis, the political crisis in the early uh, 70s was about uh, militancy among uh, the mining unions who were looking. They were looking for a 35% pay increase. They got one as soon as the Labour government came in. They got another one the following year. But by the end of the 70s, most of the coal pits uh, were closing. And in the early 80s, all the rest were closing. Uh, so a whole industry disappeared. And now we're, you know, here we are now, uh, having had the best part of 40 years of production of oil in the North Sea, uh, which has been a huge boost to parts of Scotland, uh, and now wondering whether uh, with the, the crash in the oil price, uh, there's much future for all of the jobs that currently still exist in the North Sea. So there are bits of it that look like straight echoes of energy problems of the 70s and energy problems of the 2020s. Um, and that's true in other sectors as well. We've, got, we've gone through it in steel, we've gone through it in heavy engineering, we've gone through it in so many areas that, you know, the, the Scottish economy was very much a kind of uh, um, heavy industrial based economy. Now we're into a world where 
so much of commerce is uh, has a, a, a kind of digital dimension to it and the digital stuff can be done virtually anywhere so that you know we're, we're competing not on a national basis but around the world uh, with with other groups and and that's completely changed things as well there were huge attempts to find sticking plasters uh, of all sorts in the decades between these two times uh, I mean we tried in, in in Scotland to embrace the digital changes uh, and you know there was a time in the 80s and 90s when we were talking about Scotland becoming Silicon Glen didn't happen uh, the computer in my desk and presumably the computers in your desk uh, none of them are made here but we had an attempt to make those to make mobile phones to do all the things that now in the main are being done in China uh, and and that didn't happen and we can go through a lot of other areas you know we used to have a textile industry in Scotland uh, all sorts of kinds of textiles being made here in Scotland uh, and of course most of that's now gone to Asia as well uh, so our, our dominant economy now increasingly dominant is a service economy uh, and I imagine if we're going to have a future coming out the other end a lot of the things uh, that will save us uh, from uh, this being really rough for a long period of time ahead is ways in which we find new ways to do services uh, uh, going forward and that's going to require a lot of uh, human ingenuity and new ideas and new ways of, of uh, serving each other with services that we all find useful. Alf, you've talked about the decline of heavy industry in, in Scotland and, and obviously that had a big impact, particularly on certain parts of Scotland. Um, probably that many would argue that they haven't recovered from even to this day, really. Um, we've been quite interested in the, obviously the kind of different sectors that might be impacted differentially, which will lead to different impacts in different areas of Scotland. I suppose we're thinking particularly about rural areas of Scotland. Um, but there are there are lots of potential differential impacts in different regions. I just wondered if you had any thoughts on the potential kind of regional impacts of the crisis, both in the kind of short and medium term and in the long term. I mean, I think I think the old industrial areas have never really recovered, and and you can see that in some of the the data that's beginning to emerge from the coronavirus uh, crisis. I mean. I see in my old hometown area of Inverclyde uh, has the highest uh, level of uh, deaths from coronavirus anywhere in Scotland. It's twice the rate of Glasgow, I think, and Glasgow's a hot spot as well. Uh, but Inverclyde's had a real struggle uh, and it's manifested particularly at the moment in Inverclyde because that shipbuilding town, which is basically what it was, it, it was built on sugar and shipbuilding and heavy engineering uh, and, a, and a bit of textiles as well. Um, and all it's got now is one wee yard that's struggling to build two ferries uh, for a state company uh, when it used to have half a dozen big yards that were building ships that sailed all around the world. That's never going to come back. But it's, 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 um, it's also still 
a rather nice part of the Clyde uh, and one of its great uh, um, hopes in terms of the local economy was to get some spin-off from growing cruise traffic that was coming into the Clyde. Uh, but you, you think, well, is that a sustainable future? I mean, in the same way that the avi aviation industry is having to, to look at whether it's got a future and is already from BA to Virgin to all the other groups, Ryanair and the rest, they're all laying off pilots and, and cabin crew staff in huge numbers. Uh, if they're doing that because they think it's going to be difficult to get the scale of uh, air travel back to the level it was before this crisis, I would have thought the cruise ship market is going to have a similar, similar problem because a lot of people are going to look at the experiences of those ships that were uh, found at sea with the virus live among the crew and among the, the clientele. These, these are massive potential problems to service sector industries, you know, where a rich society, you know, more and more people can afford to go cruising, more and more people can fly on holiday. Are they going to be still doing that in three or four years' time? I'm not absolutely sure they are. And I think I think these are the questions. In terms of rural Scotland, both my kids live in uh, North West Scotland, uh, so I know the rural economy up there quite well. Uh, they've got very simple uh, lives. One of them uh, lives in a bit of forest owned by his father-in-law and they build uh, timber structures. Uh, it's a small scale building business, um, but they can't build anything at the moment because they can't get supplies and they can't get, uh, and they're not allowed to go on site and do anything. Uh, and my other son's a gardener uh, and, and he, he looks after uh, uh, a big garden up there and is building another for a local hotel but the hotels are all shut down uh, so there's there's real at the village level uh, and the rural level there are real crises about just how you sustain the micro businesses that give so many people their economic uh, raison d'etre so that's another challenge so I, I think it's quite difficult from the midst of the crisis itself to see what the big hopes are uh, beyond it because the prevailing mood of people for now has been anxiety and fear. You know that this thing's going to hit them too or somebody in their family and is going to be protracted. Yeah, absolutely. And earlier you, you touched a bit on the sort of the scale of the policy responses. You referred to the job retention scheme paying <laughs> the wages of a quarter of the workforce in the UK, for example. Um, I guess thinking about the historic context of these sorts of policy measures um, and you know the other things that have been announced, I just wondered what your view was on these um, and the extent of them. Um, compared to previous crises that the, the economy's gone through? I think they're much bigger, uh, much bigger responses. I mean, I think, I think partly, I mean, in the 70s, given that you were in a period of stagflation, you know, and, and, and prices were rising by up to 35% a year. I mean, it's extraordinary. And wages were trying to chase to catch up. Uh, in the period we're in, um, there's a much more stable fiscal background 
uh, you know, interest rates are at historic lows, in part because of another crisis that we suffered 10 years ago in the financial crisis. Uh, but the, um, the, uh, the, the, the consequences of all of that is that the government was able to do much more in terms of uh, printing money and throwing money at uh, basically writing the paychecks of so many of the people who are being, la were being laid off their, their, their work are furloughed as the modern uh, become the new term. But they will not be able to keep that going. And I see Sunak, the, the, the Chancellor, is already indicating that come next month, you know, there'll be a gradual weaning off of the furloughing schemes and some of the other schemes that, that have been brought in. And that's going to be pretty tricky because, you know, if you can't find an answer to uh, social distancing in so much of the leisure sector, you know, that's a huge sector for young people. Uh, if you can't find a way of sorting that out, um, I don't know how many of uh, the uh, restaurant, hotel, uh, leisure trade, uh, the, the, um, the social interaction things like uh, that, that dominate so much of uh, our arts and entertainment industries. Uh, that's a huge uh, employer of younger people. How they get weaned off furloughing very quickly and get back to having restaurants open and having uh, concerts starting again and people uh, spending time together in social uh, interaction. I think that's going to be incredibly difficult to manage. And um, I don't see, and I don't actually see an awful lot of, uh, although they've been very bold in the fiscal measures that they've taken and the money they've thrown at the problem, I don't really see that they've, uh, they've got answers to where this new uh, road that they're marking out ahead is going to lead, what the world's going to look like. It's going to require, I suspect, an awful lot of uh, individual inspiration and ideas. You know, I mean, people are going to have to try and reshape the world in their own heads and then try and reshape the world around them from their own heads as well, because it's, there's not going to be, I don't think, any kind of master plan emerging from politicians of whatever uh, hue they are to try and find a way forward beyond uh, uh, 2020 into 2021 when the, the worst of the restrictions on movement have ended. Yes, and you can see that, as you said, the Chancellor's starting to make noises about what might the transition out of the job retention scheme, for example, be. Um, you know, um, I mean, I know a lot of employers would like it to be more flexible than it is at the moment in order for them to start bringing employees back perhaps part of the week, you know, and these sorts of things to allow businesses to operate at reduced capacity but not quite their full capacity at the moment. So it will be interesting to see how these policy measures further evolve yeah. um, over, over the next few weeks. Yeah. I mean, I suppose one of the the interesting things, um, watching the, the different policy responses that have been put in place is the sort of um, the interaction between the, the sort of the measures at the UK government and the Scottish government level. 
um, which you know are not always the same um, if there are um, you know so there's things like business streets which is different in Scotland so there was different measures put in place and in some cases kind of different guidance issued to um, to Scottish firms so we were here and anecdotally for example some construction businesses were maybe operating in England but they weren't in Scotland um, and I just wondered from your point of view um, sort of watching this um, if you had any views on on the sort of differential approaches and, and sort of how helpful that's been for business it seemed to me that a bit of a bit of that has been about the state of politics across these islands. I mean, you know, the national question in Scotland is not going to go away anytime soon. But I think I think what's difficult is when the big announcements were made by the Treasury, the early announcements about what they were going to do to keep the uh, economy afloat when so much of it was being shut down. Um, I think there was a kind of temptation uh, for, uh, and it's maybe kind of built into the years of devolution and the growing powers of the Scottish Parliament. Uh, there was a, an attempt to, to, to put, a, a, not a spin, but put a, a sense on the strategy that was being adopted. Something that said, we're doing it slightly differently to meet Scottish needs. But sometimes it's looked a wee bit like just tweaking it for the sake of tweaking it. Uh, and, and I'm not sure that that has all been all that successful. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the basic challenges are the same wherever you are on these islands. I mean, if restaurants and cafes and bars are shut and that whole leisure sector, which employs so many young people, uh, is going to struggle to answer the social uh, norms of the post-Corvid era. I, I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, a little bit more money for this bit of those sectors or that bit. I mean, one of the interesting ones uh, is the way in which uh, uh, the Scottish Government uh, had more money uh, going to uh, airports and the aviation sector in Scotland. Now there is a case you know, for the small scale aviation sector that links the Scottish islands and so on. But is that so different from, you know, isn't the answer uh, to what aviation will look like post COVID really about, you know, will we want to travel again? You know, will we want to sit on these planes with all these other people at the risk of another uh, mass uh, epidemic breaking out at some future point, or will we actually think, well, this is a chance to, you know, uh, begin to explore things nearer home and not fly as much as, as we were doing before. Um, and I'm not sure that having a tweak in the policy response in Scotland that favours aviation when it doesn't south of the border uh, actually solves anything. It, it just becomes a tweak for a tweak's sake. Yeah, yeah, and that, you know, you can see the focus is obviously moving on to how we take us out of lockdown in, in a safe way um, and, you know, transitioning towards, I guess, what the new normal might be in the medium term and then who knows in the, in the long term and, and Mark might ask you a bit more about that in a second. Um, obviously, um, 
uh, we read your column about the the groups that have been set up by the Scottish government to advise them on the sort of economic um, recovery. Um, and I just wondered if, if you'd seen um, any more sort of since your column um, or had any more views on um, the role of that group um, and how sort of focused it will be on sort of actually delivering policy solutions which can help us rebuild the economy after this crisis. I really, I really thought the darkest bit about it was that the group was created and it was supposed to come up with a roadmap by the end of June. I mean, it's absurd. The idea that anyone, no matter how expert, will by the end of June know what the roadmap should be is just a palpable nonsense. It's just crazy. Um, and some of the people uh, who are doing it, I mean, I know some of them quite well. Uh, and I've, you know, no, uh, I don't have uh, any qualms about saying that they, you know, they're able and uh, considerable people. But one, one is, the, uh, is the principal of another Scottish university. And, and if there's one group, uh, I may say, that has some huge challenges ahead, it's Scottish universities, you know, who have spent the last 20 years investing like there's no tomorrow in their, their physical infrastructure and their campuses, growing their student numbers, uh, and uh, in a world of uh, no tuition fees in Scotland for domestic students, uh, placing more and more of their eggs in their basket uh, in continuing to be able to bring students from China and America and elsewhere uh, to come and study at, at Scottish universities. Now, none of that's certain going forward. And I would have thought that's a big enough challenge for any university principal uh, to not then say, could you come and join this group? And by the end of June, could you show us the roadmap out of the crisis for the whole Scottish economy? It's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. But, but I mean, I don't get asked to join these groups, but I do know a lot of the people who do get involved in them. And there's, there's a kind of sense that you can't say no, but there's not really any sense that we're going to come up with huge new motivations and ideas about how we get out of something that we don't even fully, fully understand the impact of as yet and certainly won't know it by the end of June. I mean, if you look back in the past, there have been moments of huge significance in, in terms of people coming up with visionary ideas that changed everything. I mean, if you look at the, the uh, period immediately after the Second World War, uh, some of the people, uh, you know, the, the uh, Labour politicians who went to the north of Scotland and created hydro uh, electric, uh, the old hydro board and, and created the, the, the first big green energy uh, transformation in Scotland. Uh, that, that was an extraordinary story. Uh, and there was a thing back then uh, uh, where all the big business people and all the politicians sat around a table together and it was a kind of trading process, but they came up with ideas and they did things and they created big, big changes. You know, they built, they built huge industrial estates, you know, the estates that you still see to this day, like Hillington in, in the outskirts of Glasgow near the airport, 
big industrial estate, was built immediately after the Second World War as a kind of demonstration that we were going, we were back in business and we're doing stuff. Uh, uh, despite all the bombing and the blitz and all the rest of it, what we don't see now, I mean, setting up a committee to chart a roadmap out of uh, a crisis that has elicited the res political response that we shut down almost the entire economy for a few months uh, till the virus passes, doesn't bear any relationship to the things that were done. Some of the things that were done in the past were disasters. I mean, some of the big privatization, some of the big nationalization uh, schemes all ended in failure. I mean, nationalizing shipbuilding, nationalizing the mines, nationalizing steel have all come and gone and perished. Uh, but so, some of the stuff that was done in the past uh, was quite transformational. I, th I don't think there'd be many people in rural Scotland, certainly not in the north of Scotland, who would not say in its early days uh, that uh, the creation of the Highlands and Islands Development Board was not a, a major changer, game changer, for the economies of rural north of Scotland. And that's, that started in 1965. And it was the work of, I mean, it was work of great academics like uh, a former um, principal of yours, Sir Kenneth Alexander. Uh, was. I mean, if you look at, if you look at the, the way in which in the 1960s, uh, the uh, Highlands and Islands Development Board was created in 1965, a full decade before the Scottish Development Agency, the original of uh, the original of Scottish Enterprise, was created. These were hugely Im uh, impactful policy decisions that involved academia, involved politics, involved business people. I don't see that uh, sense of that anymore. I mean, I, I, the politicians do their bit, business does it, but there's not the same. And then they have these little groups of people who are suddenly give a, given a job to do, but they're just, you know, they're, they're given a huge job and asked to deliver it by yesterday. And it's not possible. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, and I think your point about you know, the level of uncertainty as to the sort of length and breadth and depth of the crisis, even when we're in, when we're in the middle of it, you know, and how little we understand about the pandemic and its progression and how it might change in months to come, um, that does make it you know, incredibly difficult to, to plan and to, to visualise and picture a way out of, of this crisis. Um, but but just to close us off, that being said, although it's an incredibly difficult question, um, could you could you point to or, or discuss for us um, any structural, be it you know in the economy or the government or society, um, changes that you you perhaps foresee coming out of this um, crisis you've touched sort of throughout the discussion on the services sector and the universities facing challenges, people having to reshape their own view of the world uh, and get to terms with that um, before we move forward. Um, so could you discuss anything that sticks out for you um, in terms of changes to expect? And then also, um, if you can add to that, anything you think that can be learned 
from recoveries uh, in the past and, and transitioning to some form of new normal as, as it's been called a lot in the last few weeks. Yeah, the problem with the, the new normal, uh, I mean, once, uh, let's assume, let's assume that we get rid of this virus and that we, you know, we don't get future uh, iterations of it that are continuing to disrupt uh, life as we know it, uh, and that we get back to looking uh, at what we do next to get uh, people working again and earning again. There are all sorts of big ideas flying around in that area. But there are also big challenges uh, beyond this. I mean, this has put uh, a stop to all talk of Brexit in the last few months. But we're still supposed to be leaving the European Union by the end of this year. And we've still got to have some kind of resolution as to what relationship we have with the rest of Europe in the future, when what relationship we have with other parts of the world, notably uh, North America and the uh, United States in particular. But it seems to me the biggest uh, challenge of the future is another ex existential challenge that we're really kind of messing about with at the moment and not really taking fully seriously. And that's the uh, the crisis, not caused by a virus, but caused by our own behaviour in consuming so much and doing so much that we're heating up the planet and causing significant climate change. And we've got to do something about decarbonising, uh, really serious work on decarbonising. And we don't seem to have, you know, there are initiatives to do this and to do that, but there's no big overarching uh, vision of how we actually get hold of that problem and solve that problem. And solving that problem involves all sorts of potential new industries in all sorts of areas. I mean, I, I, I was just reading uh, this week in our column about uh, um, there's some UK government money going out into some of the alternative energy strategies going forward. Uh, particularly looking at, you know, the, one of the biggest ones is we we all fire our homes, heat our homes with natural gas. 80% of homes in Scotland are, 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 are heated by natural gas. If we're serious about uh, getting off the hydrocarbon habit, we're going to have to find new ways of doing that. Now, you could heat them with electricity. We've got to find ways of doing the electricity. There's already quite a lot of dynamism behind uh, exploring some things like uh, offshore and onshore wind. But there's lots of other areas we're only beginning to scratch the surface of, uh, like uh, the use in, which is possible in transport, is possible in heating, is possible in all sorts of areas of using hydrogen. Because if, if you use hydrogen to drive a bus, uh, you don't get any uh, noxious fumes out the other end, all you get is water vapour. Um, so there's opportunities there and the UK government has just launched uh, some competitive money to try and develop that and there's a little company up in, in, in Bankery in, in Aberdeenshire uh, that's trying to lead on that and also add on a bit of uh, something that people have been talking about for 30 years but have never managed to make happen properly carbon capture and storage of 
the existing carbon that's being uh, exploited and getting it into reservoirs where it does no harm. Um, there's opportunities there, but there's no one painting the big picture uh, uh, that, you know, there's paper after paper being produced on this aspect or that aspect. What I'm looking for is the kind of people, the, the kind of thing that people in the 40s uh, with uh, bringing power to the glens of the highlands through hydro schemes or in the 60s with the Highlands and Islands Development Board trying to stimulate small-scale industry in the islands and the, in the more rural parts of the highlands. Um, politicians and uh, local people and industrial people work together with these big ideas collectively. Instead, we now kind of fight at a micro level about who gets the credit for doing what uh, and how many papers you can produce saying what you're going to do without ever doing any of it. So I'm looking for the kind of areas uh, that we could do. You know, since we're having this crisis, for example, with care homes and the number of old people that are dying, and I'm not saying that's just because I'm an old person and who might end up in one of these care homes, but I think a lot of thinking could usefully be done about how we uh, span the generations by using the experience and memory and knowledge of old people in their later years in a more productive way than tucking them away in homes and then ever so often uh, having a crisis, uh, a viral crisis that wipes half of them out. There must be better ways and, and surely when you look at some of the, the good things that have happened in this uh, period of lockdown, like the old boy uh, walking around his garden and and raising 31 or 32 million pounds for the health service charities or the old woman in Sutherland that's going up or walking up her stairs every day till she's reached the height of Sullivan and raising money that way for health service charities. There's maybe a way in which we can begin to break down this old generational thing is that, that you know when somebody's passed it you just tuck them away in a home and wait for them to go uh, and you use them and you know, there's a way of maybe your generation, uh, Mark, and uh, uh, and mine, uh, actually finding new ways of uh, interacting in a productive way to shape a better future. Yeah, I, th I think if if um, the need for a collaborative and innovative effort to prepare for you know existential risks wasn't already. Uh, in our minds um, regarding climate change and the climate emergency before this it certainly is certainly is now and um, right that's great Alf and uh, thanks very much for for joining us today it's been great to have a think about um, the current crisis we're facing in a in a historical context and, and try and learn a little bit about um, the Scottish economy and, and how it's formed over the the past uh, century to to put us in the position we're in today you can subscribe to our uh, podcast through all major streaming services. Also, to keep up to date with developments in the Scottish economy, you can visit our blog at fraserofallander.org, where we're currently posting regularly on the impact of COVID-19 in the economy and wider society. There, you can, you'll find all the links to subscribe to our podcast, and you'll also find the link to our Twitter account. 
thank you very much for listening and thanks again to Alf and to Mary for being with us today.